Hi everyone, we're up to chapter 24 and chapter 24 must be one of the most difficult to unpack and articulate really in the whole of Tanakh. We've finally come to a crescendo where what has been boding or foreboding for the past few chapters finally arrives at the point of the beginning of the destruction of the temple and at a parable that is unparalleled in its ferocity. So chapter 24 opens with a date. It's the 10th of Tevet in the ninth year of the reign of Tzidkiyahu, the king. And this was the day, as we know, that the siege was laid on Jerusalem, as we know from the Book of Kings too. And highlighting the date at the start of the chapter indicates that these prophecies about events taking place all the way in Jerusalem were said by Yehezkel here in Babylon at the time. And once the news of the destruction starts to spread, his listeners, who probably still doubt the veracity of his words, will know that he spoke prophetically about what was happening in real time, as it were, in Jerusalem. So Yechezkel now, at the beginning of this chapter, returns to the parable of the pot, and it's pretty gruesome. There's a repetition of the phrase, woe to the city of blood. Jerusalem is never called by name. It's always called just the city of blood, which is incredibly difficult for us to read and to hear. And I guess he hoped that it would be as difficult or more for the people in Babylon at the time. And Radak offers a very uh, eloquent, if somewhat uh, depressing, explanation of the prophetic message behind the parable of the pot. And he says, this is what a person does with a pot. First, he places it on his lips, then fills it with water, then places meat in it and lights a fire under it until the meat is cooked. The placing of the pot on the lips symbolizes the proximity of the king of Babylon to Jerusalem, for this is the first thing he did there. And then the pouring of the water into it foretells that the fire will not burn it quickly, for water prevents the meat from cooking quickly. Um, in other words, if there's water in it, the meat will cook slowly. And likewise, the siege lasted from the ninth year of Tzidkiyahu until his twelfth year, when the inhabitants of the city uh, slowly dying off from hunger and the plague and the sword. At this point, in case we weren't uh, depressed enough, there are now two accounts of loss. There is the loss of Yechezkel's wife and the loss of the temple, both being given over in the rest of the chapter. So in verse 15 onwards, we see uh, the word of the Lord came to me, O mortal, I am about to take away the delight of your eyes from you through the plague, but you shall not lament or weep or let your tears flow. Moan softly, observe no mourning for the dead. And the chapter then continues, the verses continue to say what he shouldn't do, uh, which tell us what uh, the mourning practices were at the time. And in fact, we get some of ours indeed from this chapter here in Yechezkel. And the chapter then continues to say in verse 18, in the evening, my wife died, and in the morning, I did as I had been commanded. And when I spoke to the people that morning, the people asked me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you are acting so? I answered them, the word of the Lord has come to me. Tell the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I am going to desecrate my sanctuary, your pride and glory, the delight of your eyes and the desire of your heart, and the sons and daughters you have left behind shall fall by the sword. 
and Yehezkel shall become a sign for you. You shall do just as he has done when it happens, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. And proceeds to say, you shall not mourn for the temple. So we have a couple of very difficult questions here. Firstly, how could God put Yehezkel's wife to death for the sake of a message? Secondly, why is there no mourning for her or for the temple? So in terms of the first question, I really think we are being shown a picture of the life and mission of a prophet and the subsuming of his personal life to the mission in the most um, extreme of ways. Now, Yechezka also was a Kohen, so it's possible that had he been in the temple, he may well have been the high priest who, as we know, is forbidden to mourn even for uh, close family members. And therefore, what comes to mind is, of course, the story in Vayikra of um, Aharon's sons, Nadav and Avihu, that die on the day of the inauguration of the Mishkan, where Aaron is told that he is not to mourn his sons. And the response from Aaron is, Vayidom Aaron. And Aaron is silent. And within that silence is a wealth of emotion that is not allowed out by the word of God. And here too, I think that in that verse 18, the prophet's emotions are not mentioned and and therefore are so obvious uh, to the reader where he says, in the evening my wife died and in the morning I did as I had been commanded. So we see him here purely as the messenger of God's parable made violently real. We could ask how on earth God could do this to the prophet, and there are a number of uh, discussions on this. Uh, some say, well, that was actually her time to die, so she, it was used as a moment for the parable, which is one way of looking at it. Um, another is to say that in addition to other parables which did not happen in real life, this one also didn't, but the text does not seem to indicate this. We only have one sliver of um, a comfort, shall we say, which is that the word used for her is the word taken, lakach, which is a word of a loving, somewhat taking to God rather than a a breach in death. Uh, we see this in, for example, other righteous individuals like Hanoch in Breshit and Eliyahu, Elijah, as we know, is taken to God. And so um, this word, uh, while does not, uh, does not answer the question, which we presumably must leave to theodicy, uh, it does add a slightly different per perspective to the mix. But really, it seems that the parable has to be as shocking as possible. We've seen the increasing stridency of God's words through Yechezkel as he tries to get the people to return. Yet regardless of the danger approaching the people in Jerusalem, it seems that facts aren't enough. And one of the purpose of parables, as, as mentioned by Jack Sammons of Mercer University, is, of, is that parables are for primarily orienting, then disorienting, then reorienting the listener to matters. So by a jolting reminder to the listener of things he or she already knows. In other words, the point of a parable is not to show people what they don't know, but what they do know. And here, surely, after all the prophets, and not just Yechezkel, but Yeshayahu and Yirmiyahu, they 
all the efforts to rebuke and detail the transgressions and the consequences and the punishments, this audience knows factually exactly what's coming, but they haven't yet felt it in their hearts. And therefore, it seems to me that it is the prophet and his wife who must pay the price. This is the ultimate service of the Kohen or the prophet to the people, where the prophet as bridge between God and the people means that the personal life of the prophet is swept aside or is used as an awful parable of the national life of the people in an attempt to get them to re undo their society ills. Tova Gunzel on this says that the connection between Yechezkel's private loss and the nation's loss of the temple indicates that the profaning of the temple is irreversible. In other words, the temples that will be built after the destruction of the first temple will be a new creation and not a recreation of the temple that existed. Just as one cannot get one's spouse back but can marry another, the first one is forever gone. Now, why are the people forbidden to mourn? Rashi says that the people must not mourn because there are none to comfort you. There is only mourning where there are comforters. So in other words, giving comfort is itself the essence of mourning. The mourning customs exist to highlight a state that is so different and other from the rest of the living um, that it draws comforters to one side. And so here in a large scale catastrophe, according to this view, there is no room for mourning since there is no one else to offer, offer comfort as everyone is mourning. So it is the extent excuse me, of the, the the size of the national catastrophe, there is no one else to comfort. And the end of the Peric then concludes with, in fact, the end of Yechezkel's period of being mute. Um, and through this, there is the slight feeling of an opening to the prophecies that will now come after the destruction in terms of perhaps rebuilding. And this also brings the first part of this book to an end um, in, this, in this chapter, where it says from verse 25, also, excuse me, also, O mortal, shall it not be in the day when I take from them their strength, the joy of their glory, the desire of their eyes, and that upon which they set their minds, their sons and their daughters, that on that day he that escapes shall come to you to cause you to hear it with your ears. In other words, Yechezka will be proved right by the fugitives and the refugees that will arrive, the exiles that will arrive on the, their doorsteps in the not too distant future. And on that day, your mouth shall be open to the fugitive and you shall speak and be mute no more. And you shall be assigned to them and they shall know that I am the Lord. So what we see in these verses is a summary of the whole series of prophecies. And not only that, we see the prophet himself is the sign. And in the most extreme case here, he, with the death of his wife, he is, which is bound up with the destruction of Jerusalem, but also the opening of his mouth is the beginning of the prophecies of a revival. So this chapter is a challenging one. But what we do see is a visceral view of prophet as the mouthpiece of God, no more and no less, with all the challenges and heartbreak that this brings.